listening to Unsolved Murders, Hiding in Plain Sight. Hello, my name is Emily Miranda, and you're listening to my weekly podcast. Today we will be discussing the murder of Sherry Rasmussen, also known as the Lazarus File, where a woman is killed mysteriously in her own home. Who would want to kill Sherry, a seemingly happy newlywed at the time? And why did it take police 23 years to find the killer? Follow the podcast as we unravel the mysteries behind her unwarranted and tragic death. Sherry Rasmussen was born on February 7th of 1957 in Walla Walla, Washington. Her parents were Nels and Loretta Rasmussen. Sherry also had two sisters, Connie, her older sister, and Teresa, her younger sister. Nels, Sherry's father, was a dentist, and along with Loretta, her mother, they had a dental practice. The family was well-off and were very close. If you would like to know more about any of the people involved, such as Sherry Rasmussen or any of the other people, such as her husband, you can reference my blog under the People's tab. So let's continue. Sherry was described as kind, compassionate, and intelligent, often excelling in her studies. After graduating high school at the Thunderbird Activist Academy, Sherry attended La Sierra College in California. She started in December of 1973 when she was just 16. She followed in her aunt's and older sister's footsteps, pursuing a career in nursing. While in her freshman year, she applied to the nursing program at Loma Linda and started in the fall of 1974. In June of 1977, Sherry and her older sister Connie graduated at the same time. Sherry decided to pursue a master's degree in nursing and in December of 1978 attended UCLA while working as a staff nurse at their medical center to help pay her way through college. In March of 1980, Sherry earned her master's degree at just 23 years old. She was officially credentialed as a cardiovascular clinical nurse specialist. Sherry moved into a condo in Van Nuys, Los Angeles the same year where she lived with a roommate and her cat. When Sherry was just 27 years old, she became Director of Nursing at the Glendale Adventist Medical Center in Los Angeles. Sherry soon excelled in her chosen profession and strove to revolutionize the field of nursing. A few months after becoming Director, she met her future husband, then 28-year-old John Rudin. John was born on the 5th of September in 1958 in Eugene, Oregon. To Margaret and Richard, he had three siblings and brother Todd and two sisters, Gail and Jeanette. John graduated from UCLA in 1981 and pursued a degree in mechanical engineering. John was known to be handsome, intelligent, and athletic. It wasn't long before the two became married in 1985 and moved into the condo. However, Nels and Loretta were not that fond of John. They found him to be pleasant enough, but not a good match for their daughter. Despite the dislike for John, they still had a close relationship with Sherry, and she confided in them often. After Sherry and John had married, John had just begun his new job at Micropolis and would soon be working from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., leaving for work before Sherry did. Sherry and John woke up at 7 a.m. on the Monday morning of February 24, 1986. The day had started like any other day, however, Sherry wasn't feeling so well that morning and had decided to stay in bed while John had gotten ready for work as he had to leave around 7.20. John and Sherry had been out the night before and had gone to the movies. John later told detectives Sherry wasn't sure she was going to work or take the classes, but that he had to go to work since he had his new job that morning. Sherry thought about calling in sick to work and asked John to call her later on that morning. After that, he proceeds to head off to work. Before making it to work that morning, John dropped off laundry and made it to work before 8 a.m. Sherry eventually called in sick, and both John and Sherry's sister tried to call Sherry at home several times that day, beginning at approximately 10 a.m., but Sherry didn't answer. John had assumed since she did not answer, she had eventually decided she was going to work. 
He called her office. However, Sherry's secretary had not seen her. This was not too much of a surprise, as sometimes if Sherry was in class, she would not call into the office first. At approximately 9.45, a neighbor, Anastasia Volantis, noticed the garage to Rusman's condominium was open and no cars inside. Later that evening, John had come home from work at 5.55 p.m. He known instantly that something was wrong. There was broken glass on the driveway from a shattered sliding glass patio door. The garage door was open, and the silver two-door BMW he bought Sherry as an engagement gift was gone. It seemed strange that she would not be home, and even stranger that glass was broken. He thought she had called in sick that morning. On the evening of February 24, 1986, when John Rodin rushed inside, he found his wife's body in the ransacked living room. Shards from a broken Polaroid voice littered the floor. A TV wall unit was partially collapsed, and a crescent drawer had been yanked out, and its contents, mostly documents, dumped on the floor. Stereo equipment had been pulled from a cabinet inside the condo's living room and stacked by the door to the garage. Further, although there was no evidence of forced entry, and rooms containing other valuables, including additional stereo equipment, were undisturbed. The detectives who initially investigated the crime concluded that the murder was committed in the course of a burglary. Examining the scene, the lead homicide detective, Lyle Mayer, began to piece together what he thought had taken place. Burglars must have entered through the unlocked front door, while one removed electronics from the wall unit. The other went upstairs and was surprised by Rasmussen. Her attire, robe, t-shirt, and panties suggest that she was not expecting visitors. An interesting and relevant fact about Sherry is that Sherry was six feet tall and fit, so the struggle she had was violent. It evidently began in the living room of the second floor of the townhouse. Shots were fired from a thirty-eight caliber pistol, one of which may have hit Sherry. Hearing the shots downstairs, burglar probably fed, ditching the video components. A blood trail down the stairs and bloody handprints near the front door suggest that Sherry had tried to escape or reach the panic buttock on the alarm panel located there, but her assailant followed into the living room uh, where Rasmussen Sherry had been bitten on her left forearm, perhaps while grappling for the gun, and then struck over the head with a heavy vase, a blow that likely knocked her out. The assailant had then taken a quilt from across the room, presumably to muffle the gun's report, and fired more shots through it, killing Sherry. A housekeeper in the unit next door later said that she heard a scuffle and a scream, but no gunshots. Imagining the dying to be a domestic alteration, she hadn't called the police. Cause of death to be three gunshots to the chest, all fatal. One was a contact wound, and at least one was inflicted while she was lying on the floor or against a similar hard surface. There were abrasions on Sherry's arms near the wrist, consistent with injury from a rope or cord. There were signs that Sherry had struggled with her assailant, including multiple contusions, lacerations, and abrasions on her hands, mouth, face, head, and neck. Broken pieces of two of Sherry's fingernails were found on the floor near the condo's front door. An injury on her face was consistent with the blow from the muzzle of a gun, with the size and configuration matching of a thirty-eight caliber Smith Wesson revolver. There was a blow to her head consistent with a broken vase found near her body. On Sherry's left inner forearm was an apparent bite mark, 
The pathologist examined it under a microscope. Based on the amount of hemorrhaging and the absence of inflammation, she determined that the injury had been inflicted at or the time of Sherry's death. So, Sherry Rasmussen had been shot three times in the chest, the bullets piercing her heart, lungs, and spine. When it was all over, the killer stole the BMW parked in the garage. That most items in the house appear undisturbed, including Sherry's jewelry box sitting in plain view in her dresser, seemed to mayor further evidence of a rushed exit. Lloyd Mahay, a criminalist from the Los Angeles County's coroner office, arrived to examine the body. He tested a sexual assault kit and collected a series of swabs and slides when he noticed a bike mark on Sherry's arm. He carefully swabbed the impression left by the assailant's teeth. He reached into the swab in a tube and squeezed the stopper shut. The next morning, an evidence custodian booked the swab of the bite mark on Sherry Rasmussen's arms into evidence at 10.32 a.m. on February 25, 1986. Detectives came to a conclusion that Sherry's death was the result of a burglary. They believed that perhaps whoever broke in to steal some items were surprised that Sherry was home, and when she disturbed them, they killed her. This was in line with some other burglars nearby. Some houses had been broken into, and a woman had been assaulted in one of the houses. Two Latin men were alleged and have been involved, and the detectives believe that this was probably what had happened at John and Sherry's home. The detectives questioned John, but not to a great extent. It was clear that detective had made up his mind. The murder was the result of a burglary gone wrong. Nelson Loretta Rasmussen, Sherry's parents, arrived in Los Angeles from Arizona the day after the murder. Nels immediately sought after Mayor, the homicide detective, who informed him that the police were looking for one or more burglars in connection with the killing. The detective told Nels that they had ruled out John Rudin as a suspect. Nels mentioned that his daughter had complained one or two months earlier about an ex-girlfriend of her husband's who had shown up at Sherry's hospital one day and confronted her. Nelson didn't know the ex-girlfriend's name, but he knew she was a Los Angeles police officer. In Nell's mind, she was a prime suspect. Mayer made a note of the ex-girlfriend in the case file, but apparently never followed up. The stolen BMW was found abandoned nearby about a week later, but it offered up no further clues. While John believed the detective's account of what had happened to Sherry, Sherry's parents were not so sure. Nels couldn't understand how his daughter could have managed to fight with two men for an hour and a half. Nels knew his daughter well and she had told him things in confidence, so he knew everything below the surface was not perfect in her and John's marriage. However, Nell urged the detectives to look into a person called Lady Cop. Sherry had told Nels that week before their wedding, a woman had showed up at their home. She wanted John to wax her water skis and was an old friend of his. Sherry believed this was just an excuse for her to call into their house and check up on and see John. Sherry asked John not to wax the skis, but John did so anyway, and the woman collected the skis from their home. 
When she collected the skis, she was wearing her police uniform and told Sherry she was on a break. Nails gave this information to the detectives, but it was not followed up. Sherry Rasmussen's parents, Nails and Loretta Rasmussen, pressed Mayer to look into Rudden's ex-girlfriend, who Sherry said harassed her, but it was all in vain. Sherry's parents didn't know much about the ex-girlfriend, but they knew she was a cop. Just days before the murder, Nails remembered Sherry telling him that she believed a lady cop was stalking her on the street. All this information could have helped solve the case had the detectives not neglected it. Many fingers were being pointed at John's ex-girlfriend, Stephanie. However, detectives were not picking up on this clue. Every now and again, the case would be opened and looked at, but often just put away again. That was until 2005 when it was noticed that a swab had been taken from the bite on Sherry's forearm, but wasn't in the evidence file. A thorough search revealed that it was still in the coroner's freezer. It had been there for 18 years and was confirmed that the bite mark was made by a woman. This meant that the detective's theory that two Latino men were involved didn't make sense. However, the file went back into storage and there was nothing about any woman in the file. All of the information that Nell had provided was not on the file. In the pursuit of the truth, the police department had interviewed Lazarus in 2005. From a transcript of police interviews with Stephanie Lazarus on June 5, 2009, Detective Jaramillo asked, I didn't want to talk about this in the squad room because... Stephanie Lazarus continues, oh that's okay. Detective Jaramillo I don't know what people are listening. We've been assigned a case that we've been looking at. And reviewing the case, there's some notes to see as far as your name being mentioned. Steffi Lazarus, oh, okay. Detective Jomio, do you know John Rudin? It continues with Detective Jaramillo saying, was there any relationship or anything that developed between you and him? Stephanie Lazarus said, Yes, I mean, we dated. Detective Jamil, uh-huh. Stephanie Lazarus, you know, I mean, is it, what's this all about? Detective Jamil, it's relating to his wife. Detective Stearns asks, have you ever met his wife? And Stephanie Lazarus said, I may have. Detective Stearns continues, do you know, do you remember her name or anything or or what did she do for a living or where did she work or anything about her? Steffi Lazarus continues with, well, I think she, I'm going to say, I think she was a nurse. I don't understand why you're talking about some guy I dated a million years ago. Detective Jaramillo, yeah, Detective Stearns. Well, do you know what happened to his wife? Stephanie Lazarus continues with, Yeah, I know she got killed. Detective Stearns, And you think you thought, you said you thought his wife was a nurse. Do you have any idea where she is working at the time? Or did she ever mention that to you? Was it a hospital or a doctor's office? Stephanie Lazarus, 
I'm sure she must have mentioned it. I mean, now that you're bringing it up, I think she worked at a hospital somewhere. And yeah, I may have met her at a hospital. I may have talked to her once or twice. Detective Stearns at a... At a hospital? Stephanie Lazarus. Or more, you know? Detective Jarmule. Do you know what the circumstances were regarding her death? Stephanie Lazarus. Jeez, let me think back. Jeez, I don't know if it was, you know, if it was a burglary or something. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's been so many years. Detective Jarmule. Do you remember her first name? Stephanie Lazarus, Shelly, Sherry, I don't know, something. I mean, now that you guys are bringing all this stuff up, I mean, it sounds, that sounds familiar. But again, I mean, you know, what's, I mean, what's this got to do with me dating him and, you know, her getting killed? I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't have anything to do with it. Detectives turns. Well, like we said, we just literally got this the other day. And then, so, you know, I mean, obviously it's like Stephanie Lazarus. Yeah. Detectives turns. We recognize the name and we, you know, Stephanie Lazarus. Yeah. Detectives turns. You work next door to us, so we're trying to get some background. We're trying to figure this out. Detective Joey Mule, I know you you went to talk with her at at the hospital regarding this issue with John too. You know, kind of like, hey, you know, what's gonna happen with this thing? But would you ever have followed up to her house where you went to talk to her to say, Hey, you know what? Stephanie Lazarus, I I don't even know that I knew where they lived. Stephanie Stearns, but you didn't have any issues with her, right? Stephanie Lazarus, no, I mean, you know, obviously, if he was dating me and dating her, I probably said, hey, pick or something, you know? Stephanie Lazarus, oh yeah, they, my cars have been broken into, you know, but no cars have ever been stolen. Detective Jarmule, uh-huh. How long? Well, then, tell me about this this car getting broken into. Stephanie Lazarus, well, my car had been broken into several times. Detective Jarmule, oh, really? Did you ever lose anything or Stephanie Lazarus? Yeah, now that you mention it, let's see. Had a gun that was stolen. Detective Stearns, did you have a fight with her? You mean like you fought? Yeah, did you ever duke it out with her? Stephanie Lazarus, no, I don't think so. I mean, it just doesn't sound familiar. I mean, I mean, what are they saying? So I I fought with her, so so now I mean I I <laughs> I'm getting the jump, the leap. They're saying, okay, I fought with her. So I must have killed her. I mean, come on. I mean, that's, you know, I don't even know who these people are. And I can't even say I met any of these people. I mean, that's, that's insane. It's insane. After the interview, not much was done. And the case continued to sit for the next couple of years.
Jennifer Francis, a criminalist with LAPD, examined a piece of one of the swabs under a microscope and also performed DNA testing on it. As tantalizing a clue as Butterworth's DNA report provided in the Rasmussen case, namely that a woman might have been the murderer, it did not point directly to a specific suspect. Unlike the many cold hits rolling in thanks to Prop 69, perhaps for this reason, Butterworth's report went into the Rasmussen case file, and the case file itself went back on the shelf where it would sit for a few more years. In between the years that Sherry's case laid cold, Stephanie married, adopted a daughter, and became a detective. In early February of 2009, the squad's most recent homicide cleared. Nutel and Barbara began poking around for an interesting cold case. They soon settled on Sherry Rasmussen. The case was finally reopened. With this new reopening of the case, they were able to see much more than they couldn't before and were able to track who might have done it and were eventually able to find the killer. This time, the detectives went back over the whole investigation, but with the assumption that they were looking for a female suspect. When they finished going through the file, they had a list of five names. Among them, that of Stephanie Lazarus, the ex-girlfriend many of the people in the case had talked about, who was cited in the original police work as John Rudin's ex-girlfriend, with a further notation P.O. Not told to make anything of the initials until he recalled Rudin, who told him that Lazarus had been a Los Angeles police officer. The detectives on the Van Nuys squad made two packs regarding the Rasmussen case. First, they agreed that they would maintain total secrecy and would never speak or write Lazarus' name where anyone else might hear or see it. There was no way to know who in the vision might be acquainted with her. As an LAPD officer, they had to be very careful, and they didn't want to dirty her good name the likely event that she didn't have anything to do with the murder, or tip her off in the unlikely event that she did. Second, they promised one another that they would follow the trail of evidence wherever it led. This was not a random act of violence toward Sherry Rasmussen. Fact by fact, the team began piecing together Lazarus' relationship to Sherry Rasmussen. Lazarus and John had become close friends at UCLA, the school that John had gone to before marrying Sherry. The two had lived in the same dorm and were on and off dating before and after college. Lazarus and Rudin had met in college and dated casually in the late 1970s. After graduation between 1981 and 1984, they continued to date and were sexually intimate, but Renan did not consider her his girlfriend, and it was said that Lazarus took that very hard. Later that year, in June 1984, Renan met Rasmussen, and in May 1985, Renan and Rasmussen had become engaged. In June 1985, 
Lazarus learned of Rudin's engagement and called him upset and crying. She asked Rudin to come to her condo. When he arrived, appellant Lazarus was still crying and told Rudin she was in love with him. She repeatedly asked him to have sex with her, and he did. While John had considered this the end of his relationship, Stephanie had not and was fighting with the idea that it was the end of their relationship. However, he saw this as the ending of their relationship, and following their encounter, Renan continued his relationship with Rasmussen, and several weeks later moved in with her together. Sometime after Renan and Rasmussen were living together, Lazarus went to the hospital where Rasmussen worked and confronted her. That evening, Rasmussen had come home very upset, and Rudin confessed to having had sex with Lazarus after their engagement. It appeared Rasmussen already knew, and Rudin had promised not to have any further contact with Lazarus. In August of 1985, Lazarus wrote Rudin's mother, telling her she was truly in love with John, and that the past year had really torn her up. The letter further stated, I wish it hadn't ended the way it did, and I don't think I'll ever understand John's decision. In December of 1985, Lazarus received a letter from Rudin's mother that she said in her journal made her very, very, very sad. In the mid-1980s, most LAPD cops carried a .38 as their backup or off-duty gun. On May 27, after a week of preparation and surveillance, plainclothes detectives surreptitiously trailed Lazarus as she ran errands. When she threw out a cup and a straw that she had been drinking from, the first surveillance team swapped in and retrieved it from the trash. When examining Lazarus, there was other suspicious things in connection with her and the murder, such as her gun connection and how it might have been a coincidence and how it might not have been a coincidence. A DNA profile was quickly developed from the saliva on the straw when compared with the unidentified profile extracted from the bite mark swab. And on May 29th, it was a match. Officers were expected to let the LAPD armor know that they purchased a backup weapon. They were permitted to carry only guns that could be used with the federal .38 plus P bullets. Records from the armorer's office indicated that on February 29 of 1984, Lazarus purchased a .38 caliber Smith and Wilson Model 49 revolver. It was a five-shot model. Its barrel was approximately two inches, and on March 9 of 1986, less than two weeks after Rasmussen's death, Lazarus reported on the Santa Monica Police Department that her Smith & Wesson's Model 49 revolver had been stolen from the glove department of her car while parked in Santa Monica. An injury on her face was consistent with the blow from the muzzle of the gun, with the size and configuration matching a .38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver. In her arrest, Lazarus was told about an investigation about art theft and followed another detective to a room. 
When Lazarus arrived in the interrogation room, Stearns and Joramio abandoned the story of a suspect talking about stolen art and explained that her name had come up in a case involving an ex-boyfriend of hers, John Rudin. Knowing she was married to someone else, they told her they selected a place where they could speak privately, away from gossiping colleagues. However, Lazarus got only as far as the jail's hallway where she was stopped by other RHD detectives and placed in handcuffs. Since then, Lazarus was taken to Linwood, the Los Angeles County Jail facility for female prisoners, where she has been held ever since on 10 million bail. On June 8, 2009, she was charged with the murder of Sherry Rasmussen. Since her arrest, Lazarus had steadfastly maintained her innocence. The trial is tentatively scheduled to begin in late August. Stephanie Lazarus was a former Los Angeles police detective who was convicted in March 2012 of the 1986 first-degree murder of her ex-boyfriend's new wife, Sherry Rasmussen. Lazarus is serving a 27-year-to-life sentence for the offense at the Central California's Women Facility in Chowchilla, California. Overall, it's unfortunate that Sherry Rasmussen was caught in that crossfire. My condolences to her family and all that who loved her. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast on Unsolved Murders Hiding in Plain Sight. Again, my name is Emily Miranda, and I hope to see you next week. Have a good day, evening, or night.